I'm going to email with, with um, some other folks who are starting to trip. And uh, one of them, who lives on the East Coast, under there, uh, wrote a message to the group. And she's, um, she's older, she's in her 70s, but still very active. And she wrote this, she's been practicing for decades. On Labor Day evening, I had a pretty bad bike accident. Two days in the acute hospital trauma unit, ten days in acute rehab. A broken clavicle and rib and four pelvic fractures all on the left, and a lot of soft tissue damage in the right hip. As you all know well, the Dhamma has been an invaluable friend all along the way. As I was lying on my back alone on the rail trail, in and out of cell coverage, Anapanasati, kicked in and stayed present, foreground at times, background at other times, as I dealt with what needed to be done to get help and then to communicate with caregivers. goes on a little bit, but right that she's been in a bike accident. And what does her mind do? Mindfulness of the breath. And that's what kicked in for her. And interestingly on this email list, another teacher wrote back that a student of hers who had a similar thing happen, who was in a car accident of some kind, found that her mindfulness kicked in and was there. And the student was surprised because she had originally come to Buddhism uh, for anxiety, but she had no idea that they were just supposed to be there. So this is interesting, right? And you can imagine that even if you're not in an accident, um, the same kind of thing may have an opportunity to come about when you're dying, right? Is that uh, the body and mind are in a very different state than our normal everyday consciousness. And you know, what's going to what's going to keep it? in our mind and things get really strange. So it's not, uh, as you might guess, it's not random what is going to happen in our mind. I mean, we can't ever know completely. Um, but it certainly matters what we've done with our mind during our life, what we've practiced throughout our life. The teachings of the Dharma can actually be done all the time. Come here and do special practice days, or we listen to the Dhamma at certain times, but there's nothing inherent in the teachings that can't be done at every moment. Um, you know, just not walking, or speaking, that's always available, um, potentially. And so we can really do a lot of practice in between um, now and whenever we need it. And of course, um, all these practices that we do condition the mind in a very powerful way. It reduces anything children and suffering. So that's a strong motivator. You know, by faith at the beginning and, and confirmed confidence later, keep the practices going. And I imagine that this teacher who was in the bike accident has really committed herself to that over a while. She didn't know what would happen, and can't be sure of the next time, but at least in that one time, um, she found that the practice was right there for her. Just without her conscious doing it, it just emerged. I think it's so beautiful. 
I was recently on a three-week retreat, and the teachings on that retreat were framed around uh, one model of how practice unfolds in our mind and our life. There are, of course, a number of different models, and even within Buddhism, not to mention other spiritual traditions. But it's interesting that they do tend to have common characteristics in cultures that build up culture along the way. You know, we tend to do it in our own order, not exactly in the order stated, but into different degrees and different people, maybe more of one thing or another. But there are patterns to how, how this practice is going to change our minds. And that's because it's not personal. Oh, it's just it does this for everyone. And so, you know, we might have this idea, oh, well, it's different for me, or it's not going to work for me, or it's going to, um, you know, this one part is going to prevent something or other. But it's complicated. Um, these practices, I find they have confidence to work for many, many people. So the particular model that was used on this retreat was an image maybe, the image of purifying gold. So there's a sense of you start with something behind your body in a state that's not, you know, that's, that has other things mixed in with it that we've taken in from our culture, from our friends, from our life, from all the moments we were mindful, etc., or things that happen to us that we've gotten taken in. Um, different from uh, the part of our mind that's present um, uh, in a state of well-being, that's um, responsive, etc. So the, the, what we cultivate in meditation is that and then there's other parts. And it's kind of purified over time. It's not meant like um, we're supposed to come to a state of purity, Literally, I think um, I think that word purity can have connotations for people sometimes that are not so helpful. But I love the word purification. You can always do that. Zen teacher Paul Haller says that when you purify things, they become more like themselves. Just in the light, right? If you purify gold, it becomes more like gold over time. Whereas impure gold is kind of like gold, but has some other properties to it. So that's kind of what we're doing with our heart. And these, um, this particular map, I won't go into great detail, but I would like to share some of it because it relates to the story that we started with. This is based on what are called the seven stages of purification of the heart. And they start out. Um, very, con very concretely, the first stage is the purification of virtue, your um, ethical conduct, your integrity, however you want to think about it, different words work for different people. And it's um, sometimes even a waiting of outer practice, the things that we need to stop doing or start doing in our actions in the world, and certainly in our speech, we can all work on our speech. But also, um, you know, in our relationships, or more subtly in the way that we conduct ourselves, you 
in terms of our actions. Um, when I began practice, I was a, I was, let's say I was kind of a quick mover. <laughs> um, I, I didn't have the more deliberate mindset movement that came later. And it doesn't mean that you're always slow, um, but when I, I was not a mindful mover at the beginning. And so I noticed very quickly in practice that I was um, banging things around in the kitchen or um, pushing my body uh, while I was getting dressed. I would get dressed more quickly than I had to. Um, just little ways in which I kind of treated my body like an object that was just in that family once in my mind. And so that was kind of part of my purification of virtue was to come into a more respectful relationship body and use it in ways that express um, more care, more awareness. And of course this is an ongoing practice and it doesn't mean that one would always look like a ballerina and so forth. Um, that can get that can get caught up in things like that. But the purification of virtue we can understand that something that just brings our mind to a state of settlement and clarity and feeling basically okay about how we are in the world. We also um, reduce the fear that other beings need to have from us, from us in feeling, lying, sexual conduct, killing. We grant um, enormous uh, safety to, uh, to all beings, including ourselves. So these are some of the groups that come just from the very first stage of what you're thinking of unfolding for other practices. Um, but the next stage, I mean, we're kind of sequential if they unfold, but they all interview. So the next stage moves into purification of mind. And of course, we can see the connection that as we work on our behavior and our speech, we begin to understand where they come from. They come from the connection of the mind, the intention, a movement, a, a, a desire, an aspiration, whatever it is that's motivating us do something. And so we begin to realize that we need to purify the inside, that, that part. And purification of mind um, does include purification of our thoughts, our inner you know, way that we think about ourselves and others, but also um, it, it has to do with concentration. And so as we purify our mind, what we're purifying about are the hindrances of concentration, which are Sensual desire, ill will, restlessness, sloth and slipper, and doubt. So those are um, things that hinder our mind from being able to just be present. And so, yeah, this stage we start to really understand the benefits of training the mind to the point where we're willing to set aside um, those other concerns that get in our way when we're in meditation. We become willing to. Um, allow the mind to settle, not This helps us when the mind becomes more settled. It can be done in, in daily life, but it's so much easier when the mind is meditated to start to see what hands we're using to um, frame our life, orient our life in some ways. And this is, um, this is the third stage of the application of view. And the view is in everyday parlance, 
it's something like, you know, what's your view on Abraham? And it's, you know, view of our opinion or something. But um, what is meant in practice by the term view has to do with how we um, understand, how we understand our mind, our life, ourselves, other people, and how it is that we frame our actions and our speech and so forth. So to be more specific, it's helpful if we have the view that um, doing an official action will uh, bring good results. Now, this is clear enough if you study it, but you know, if we haven't looked carefully, we might, we might not be sure if there's a guaranteed good result from anything that's beneficial, including the moment of mindfulness, including the moment of compassion, including the brain from saying something, and everything, you know, she's never going to know that I was brain from or, similarly, there is no way to avoid having some kind of a painful effect from um, doing something with a closed mind or a closed heart or out of ignorance. So, um, I don't get caught up in this, but there's moments where we snap at somebody or um, we accidentally, quote unquote, put the pen in our bag after we've used it in a public space. And and we realize, oops, let's go to ten. So little things like that. Those do have consequences eventually. So that's one useful view that is better to orient the mind for what's possible. Another view that's important in our practice is the view that we want to reduce the need and suffer. And we might say, of course, who doesn't come to practice and want that? And yet, what we find when we start to do the practice is that we're doing a lot of things that are causing suffering to ourselves. And it's not meant to, again, to be a kind of a judgment or a criticism. We can just establish habits at times when we weren't mindful uh, that aren't useful to us. And so then there's the number of people that come to us. But the, if, we, if we're bringing our practice around the idea of, I'm going to look for where the suffering is, not so necessarily where the pain is, they're slightly different. And look for where the suffering is and try to let that go, try to let go of what's causing it. That's actually a radical reorientation of our usual way of being, which is to try to get as much pleasure as possible and avoid as much pain as possible. Not that we should seek out pain and avoid pleasure, that's not what we're saying. We're just getting more subtle toward um, really looking for what is actually suffering. Like for some people, um, they don't question that they need to do the job that they do. Maybe it's a stressful 60 hour week job and their boss is not very pleasant and they have to sit and work on the computer all day and they have carpal tunnel syndrome because of that. But they do it for years because they have the view that this is their job and that if they didn't have this, how would they make any money and maybe this couldn't work. And there's never any consideration that there's a cost to doing that, and there's a cost with it. And so, um, other options can even into the mind. Um, there are actually usually many options about what to do in a different job or take six months off, obviously, or something. So, there are, um, there are options, but only if you have the view that there could be other options. If we don't see other options, then we don't exist for them. 
So parentification is used very carefully by how we're running our lives, what we've decided to give authority to, what ideas, and realize that that has consequences. We start to see these emotions also in that some of us have the idea that um, the main important thing when walking into a room is to identify everything as a potential threat and then make sure that we avoid it. Driven by fear, and say, okay, what's dangerous here? How can I not find out? Or other people are driven by desire and pleasure, and they say, what can I get out of this situation? And what thing is going to be good? And, you know, each of these has skillful sides to it and unskillful sides to it, but we need to know that that's our organization, if it is. So meditation actually helps a lot with discovering those, and then we purify them more in line with the Dhamma, more in line with the reduction of suffering and the generation of conduct. And then the, the, the fourth purification is the purification of doubt. And that has to do a lot with the self. It has to do a lot with uh, our understanding of ourselves as a separate entity in an external world that we feel in. We, that's a view, by the way, that we carry. And it's a very deep view for anyone who feels kind of being hard to see that that's the water between. But there comes a point where we begin to question that particular model. And in practice, we always do that naturally. And we start to wonder if things are quite as self-oriented as we think they are. Because it's really a talk about me as I think it is. It doesn't mean that I'm going to disappear or that I'm going to um, lose all my boundaries and that I'm going to sacrifice myself um, away and not be able to take care of myself or anything like that. But, because that's what the self needs to do, it'll tell you all that's going to happen if you let go of the self. But um, there does come a time where you start to have a different relationship to this idea of what I am. And what this does is it gives us tremendous confidence in the practice as we see how much suffering is wrapped up with our personal story and personal neuroses and our personal relationships. And we see that surface often. There can even be a moment where we completely let go of any identification and that brings such enormous relief. But even at any level, um, as we start to gain a lot of clarity about what the practice is actually doing and transforming the mind, we can purify away any doubt that it's not going to work for us or that it's not going to last for us. That's the truth. And then so we become willing to just let it happen. And then the, um, the next three purifications include the wonderful phrase, knowledge and vision. Indeed, this um, doesn't refer really to intellectual knowledge. It refers to Dharma knowledge. Dharma vision is really, um, it's also not a very informative term. But it's this direct experience, this direct feeling that we cultivate today. You know, feeling that the mind is just right 
rarely experience and it's not often I want to if I don't work out. I will just work with me for me. I'm just going to resolve all those things that kind of keep us from having a direct relationship with experience. And when we're practicing with this knowledge and vision, uh, it becomes very good So the but each one has a little shade to it. So the fifth purification is purification by knowledge and vision of what is and not the past. I love that one. I love that name. Purification by knowledge and vision of what is and what is not the past. And so there, there's, and so Melinda said, well, I thought this was all about the past and I'm doing it. And how did I get to stage five and I still have to figure out what is and is not the past? Um, it's interesting <laughs> how that happens. Because um, as practice deepens, and some of you may know this from your own experience, we start to have very deep experiences, um, wonderful feelings of faith or concentration or seeing light in the mind or equanimity, which is really, really easy that our mind is totally in balance. And people work for years to have these things happen to them, and they do arrive. They actually come. Um, so that was actually part of purification of doubt. Then there's the problem that we identify with them. And so we start to, oh, I'm really good at meditation, so we make a self out of that. Or we say, oh, this is, a, this is it. I've got it. And this equanimity, this equanimity that I'm feeling, that that is the goal, that is the fruit. I'm really, I've made it now, and I just need to do this more and more and more. Um, that, I, we can get stuck for a long time with that, because um, the path, although the path includes life experiences, it has to, and it also includes the cultivation of wholesome and wonderful um, mental qualities, because it has to. Um, those are actually not the final thing the path. They're, they're along the way. And so we come to realize that it may take a while that clinging to this thing, so grasping onto them and identifying um, all those good qualities, is itself a kind of suffering. And at some point we realize, oh, there's some tightness around my wanting to be a quantum all the time. You know, so like I just I want to make everything that the community is. Well, that's suffering <laughs> to, to try to impose that, to try to control it. And so there comes a point where we realize that is not clinic. So any experience that can arise is not the way. It's not any experience in particular is not the point of the path. And the beginning is the letting go. Of course, equanimity is a wonderful letting go of our reactivity. So it has a lot of freedom in it. But it itself um, is something that arises and it feels that way so that it's still not there. So it's not the goal. So when we understand what is and what is not the past, we discover that it's actually even more freeing because we can move through the same moment. If we think that we're moving at the point, then we're only free when we're responding. We think that's it. What about when we're not? <laughs> so, um, then there's mindfulness and awareness of whatever mind state is there and not going into that as well. Um, and that's the path. So we actually realize a way for the path to include every moment in our life. And then we move on to 
one to knowledge and vision of the way. Knowledge and vision of the practice. The word is the word way is like a range of names in English, and one of them can be past, and so it's a blessing about the past. So I said way because I changed how it's translated, but way can also mean this, the way that can do something. And so that's what this refers to. The knowledge and vision of the and this is the case where um, we are no longer moving to put effort into the practice. It just is unfolding, and we're kind of witnessing it unfolding. And this is what this woman was talking about when she um, had this bike thing, and Anapangasaka kicked in, in her words. Um, that is because her mind was so accustomed to practice. She has been practicing for so long, all the time being pregnant, all the time letting go, constantly, that um, even in a situation that was very extreme, that was just what her mind kept doing. Um, so this is a very interesting experience when we're in this knowledge um, to feel where we practice uh, as a life of its own. My teacher calls it a biological imperative that we can tap into. Now, most of the time, when we're in an ordinary, clean uh, consciousness, we have to do some effort, right, to, to do practice. And we don't feel like it's a biological imperative. In fact, if we just sit there and let our mind do whatever, it'll think about lunch tomorrow, you know, like right off the path. But there, um, there comes a point where we can tap into, I mean, actually the heart wants to be free. I don't know how you guys got to this meditation center, but something got you here. <laughs> and it, um, it's something in you that you may not have fully opened to or tapped into yet. But there's a yearning for freedom for something um, in our heart. And hopefully we'll find ways to unfold that through our practice and discover more about what it is. But this is the point where that has gained the upper hand, shall we say, over all the other stuff stuff in our mind, um, and it's running along for a few minutes. And the final purification is the purification by knowledge and vision. There's nothing else after it. And that, you know, that's when the mind completely lets go of itself. outside of our um, conscious understanding of what the mind is doing at this moment. But it's very, very healing and purifying for the mind to even let go of its own understanding of itself. And those, you know, those moments come infrequently at first and more frequently later. But mostly, um, you know, when, when the mind starts cycling around, we, ones that are about knowledge and vision, it's, um, you know, the practice is really unfolding very clearly. And we may say that, gee, it's going to be difficult for me to get there, but it, it's not the case necessarily. These are not linear stages where, you know, I hope you didn't go through and say, oh, I'm on that one. <laughs> Maybe you did, and that, that, that could be still good enough um, for today. But really the mind is um, able to go into the higher one, stay on retreat. And once you have a, a reference point that's different from what you had before, you know, your mind 
got a little closer to them biologically terrible. Even if you have to go back to your daily life and you're living and you're on the computer and whatever, somehow I found having that reference point um, makes a big difference. And somehow subtle informs the everyday life, even though things are different again. But then we may have to go back and tap into something again in later stages so that we can slowly move the mind toward holding that stage more of the time. Parts that we're unwilling to work with, or parts that we don't even know about. Mm -hmm. 
that the quarters go to death. So that's what it's doing, and it's in down. But what you should next is better. It's more like it just comes in in a moment. And the drama works at level of the Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.